deals in money, we are constantly seeking deals in money as real estate investors. And I bet you're having a challenge right now, especially with deals, if you're like most real estate investors, because it's tough to find deals right now. But here's the thing. There's a competitive advantage out there that when implemented, it will help you accomplish your objective of getting more deals and or getting more investors. And that is having a great follow-up system. Having a great follow-up is one of the keys to success in real estate. And follow-up boss is the leading CRM for real estate. This is the system you need in place so you can reach out to owners and brokers directly for deals, or you can follow up with your investors. And you do it all in one spot. The CRM makes it 10 times faster to call and text owners, then integrates those into a software so nothing slips through the cracks. The follow-up boss conversion system and powerful management tools help align your methods and drive growth that otherwise it could have been missed and probably would have been missed. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever to get a system in place. And if you need help, they got you covered. Followup Boss offers experts seven days a week. You can pick up the phone and speak to an actual human being anytime during business hours. Visit followupboss.com forward slash best ever to check out how much time you could save by streamlining your follow-up process. Best ever listeners, they're treating you extra special. You get an extended 30-day free trial twice the length of the normal trial for a limited time. Go to followupboss.com forward slash best ever and perfect your follow-up. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I found that during due diligence, sometimes the smallest questions lead to the biggest issues. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Adam Benton. Adam is joining us from Salt Lake City, Utah. He is the owner of Stellar Senior Living, which develops, acquires, and operates senior housing properties in nine states. Adam's portfolio consists of being a GP on 4,000 units, including independent, assisted living, memory care, and skilled nursing. He is also an LP on hotels and apartments. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. And how are you today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm grateful to be here and I'm happy to talk about specifically senior housing. It's kind of an alternative asset class and uh, happy to shed some light on that today. How did you get into that? It's a good question. So it's a family business. I have two partners and it's my brother-in-law and my dad. And really my dad had a lot of experience in the space. And so I went to business school. And after that, we had talked about potentially starting a business together. So we built this from the ground up and we opened our first properties uh, in 2012. So 10 years ago. You guys were brainstorming and trying to figure out what kind of business to start. And this is what you landed on. Knowing what I know now, there's no way I would have done it this way, but it's just one of those things. So for example, the first properties that we bought, we decided to self-manage, which is looking back on that's just like totally insane now, just because you're, you're having to make up policies and procedures and processes on the fly, but we did it and it's, we've come a long way since then. <laughs> Adam, what were the factors that led you to believe this was the best course of action? You mean to get into senior housing? Yeah. I think everybody knows this is easy, but senior housing has a lot of good demographic tailwinds and there's a lot of demand coming into the space. And so 
when we looked at it, we figured that you actually need about 10 years to put the platform together, just like in any management business where you want to be developing, owning properties and managing them, you have to get to a certain scale. And so we laid out a plan early on to do that. If you look at senior housing today, there's really three phenomenal growth factors that haven't even totally started yet. One is baby boomers are aging. So most people think baby boomers, that's 1945, end of World War II, people come home, they start having kids. But in reality, if you look at birth rates in the U.S., birth rates were really picking up in the late 30s, like 36, 37. And our average age is 86 years old. So if you take that kind of 1937, add 86 years, now you're talking like 2024, 2023, right in that time frame. So that's a big driver of growth in our business is people in their mid 80s. The second factor is just that people are generally living longer. So every decade that goes by, people that were born in that decade are going to live way longer than the people in the previous decade. So even 10, 15 years ago, to meet somebody who's over 100 years old was a complete surprise. And today, it's pretty common that at every one of our 30 locations, there's at least a handful of people that are over 100, over 100. And then the last one is just what we call the utilization rate, which is the percentage of population above a certain age that use assisted living. And in the early 90s, that was 7, 8% of people above 75. Today, that's 13, 14%. And that's going to continue to grow. So those are three factors that I just laid out that are pretty easy for a lot of people to come up with and realize there's a lot of tailwinds here. And we're right at the cusp of about a 20-year cycle here in senior housing. So we looked at that early on and said, we want to be in this space. We think it's going to take a while to build a platform that's capable of growth. So that's why we got into it. I don't know if that answers your question, but that was our thought process. It absolutely answers my question and gives me a segue to my next question. So all of those tailwinds that you mentioned, couple that with the higher reimbursement rates, the higher returns for senior management. Why isn't everybody in this space? Oh, uh, what what are the barriers um, to entry and what are the challenges? So one great thing about this business, the reason why we're talking on a real estate podcast is it's a nice blend of real estate and operations. And I think people are generally in one of those buckets, not in both. So just as an example, if you think about a standard spectrum of real estate here, you have your home on one end and you have a hospital on another. And there's a few spots that people stop along the way, including 55 plus active living, right? And then independent living and then assisted living, memory care, skilled nursing, long-term care, hospital. So that's your continuum. And what we find is that if you look at an assisted living location, which is private pay, you're going to have an apartment complex, 150 unit apartment complex, but then you're going to just inject that with steroids and you're going to add in food. You all of a sudden now you're making three meals a day and then you layer on activities and then you can layer on transportation on top of that. And then if you're doing some sort of care, you're going to have a license, you're going to be offering nursing care. So because of that, The core foundation of this business is real estate, but on top of that, you do have to understand all of those operational pieces. I think that's a huge barrier to entry for a lot of people. It comes with a fair amount of challenges. This is not an easy population to keep happy. A lot of opinions, 
And because of that, it can be challenging. Also incredibly rewarding, but that's probably the basics of it. I love the intangible, not an easy crowd to appease. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned it was a mistake to self-manage. Why? Well, looking on it now, I know too much, but would I still recommend it for anybody? Yes. So the main concept is, maybe I'll tell you the story of how we took over our first four properties. So I was just finishing business school. This might be interesting to listeners. I'd love to hear it. Business school. And we decided let's start a business together. So we didn't know if that was possible, if we could find funding for it. So I just started cold calling property and property owners in different states that we wanted to be in. And that took me quite a while. And we landed on a guy who was willing to sell four of his 30 assets. So if you can imagine the four that he's willing to sell aren't his nicest properties, right? They're going to be a mix of just some really challenging older assets. So we put those under contract, but we didn't have the cash to purchase them. It was about a $40 million purchase. So we ended up working with a public real estate investment trust where they actually bought the assets and then turned them back around and leased them back to us. So it's just your classic lease agreement with a public real estate investment trust. Then to give us some space, we negotiated to have our lease payment paid at the end of the month. So our lease payment was about a quarter million dollars a month at the time. So you combine that, now all of a sudden we have a free business. So we didn't put any money down and we've taken over these four properties. We've got about $12, $13 million in revenue, enough money to pay management expenses for ourselves. And we were off to the races. And then we've given ourselves some room by not having to basically pay in arrears our first month's lease. And so that gave us a float of $250,000. But then as you're going, you just realize like, okay, we, we caught the bus, but now we actually have to operate these. So that means we have instantly 250 employees and we have all sorts of stuff related to paying employees, HR regulations, things related to getting food in, cooking food, all the policies and procedures that go with it. And so people would call and say, hey, do you have a form for that? Yeah, what does it look like? Give me like 30 minutes to turn around, go make it, turn it back around. Looking in hindsight, we would have probably just hired out the management to another company to do it, taking really good notes, and then come back and done it. So that's why I said it was probably a mistake is that looking back on it, it's like, yeah, you just spend a year watching somebody else do it and then maybe step into the role. But we did it right out of the gate. Yeah, and way to start off small. Right. I've heard go bigger, faster, but damn. (laughs) (laughs) Employment numbers in senior housing are eye-popping and it's just, that's the nature of it. So we have 2,300 employees today and that's a lot of hourly workers, nurses, chefs, maintenance directors, professionals. So it's a huge group of people that you have to keep track of and help perform to their best of their abilities. But it sounds harder than it is. I promise you, if I handed you the same opportunity, you would have done the same thing. It would have been fine. Adam, I feel like we could do a case study on just that one deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what was that senior living? Was that assisted living? What was yeah, that? That's a really good question. When people hear senior housing, they automatically think skilled nursing. They think dark, dingy, smells like urine when you come into it, paid by the government, Medicare, Medicaid. And that's not necessarily the case. There's actually what you had mentioned, assisted living, which is privately paid. Somebody's leaving their house. They want to move into a place where they can get three meals a day, have socialization, activities, and then potentially have additional care when needed as they age in place. 
if you walked into the newest ones that are getting built today, those feel like anyone would want to live there. It feels like a cruise ship, totally amenitized with different dining locations. They're pretty amazing. So we started out in that space, the assisted living, privately paid, where people are basically moving into an apartment complex that you run, but you're offering all of those other services. That's a good distinction. In terms of the different margins on the different levels of care, what's the highest margins? It's a great question. Maybe an easy way to think about this is what is an apartment margin, 60 to 70% margins and maybe a 30% expense ratio? Is that fair? I'm a commercial investor. I don't do multifamily. I do retail, industrial. Yeah. Okay, great. All right. So I'm I'm asking, but maybe you say it's really high margins and you're looking at EBITDA. So you add in rent, you actually put it before rent on the EBITDA. When you're adding in more care as your residents get more frail, that margin goes down, but your revenue goes up and you end up with a similar amount of money coming down to the bottom. So an example of that would be the next step from an apartments would be independent living for the senior space. That means that you're doing everything but the care portion and you're looking for margins between 40 and 50% margins. When you get into assisted living, think like 30 to 40%. And then when you get into memory care, like Alzheimer's care for dementia residents, that's more like 20 to 30%. Those are broad numbers, but at the same time, your revenue is going up. But then as you move down that spectrum that I just laid out, your cap rate also increases because there's additional risk. So it all kind of blends together, but that's the short answer. Thank you. Adam, when you started out, real estate was not part of your business plan, right? Right. We started out more on the operations side of it. Yeah. And when did you get that epiphany that real estate's a huge play here? Pretty early on, obviously. With when you were estate. making your giant mortgage payments <laughs> or your lease <Yeah>. payments. <laughs> I know. And leases are interesting because these are 35-year leases. I'll be my late 60s by the time that these retire. But you do get some portion, but you don't own all aspects of the real estate spectrum. So when you look at senior housing, there's good cash flow. You can make money on the cash flow side. And it's probably 50-50 between the cash flow and then appreciation based on just operating things a little bit better. So we started early on, like our fifth property that we bought, we bought it with the cash flow from the first four. So we found a property where we assumed a HUD loan and then put in the money. We had to borrow some money from the seller because we didn't have enough cash. And then we were just off to the races. So early on, we knew that we wanted to be participating in the real estate side of this business, but you need capital to do that or you syndicate and then cut deals to get basically a promoter carried interest on that. And how long ago did you acquire that piece of real estate? Well, after those four leases, we then acquired our first asset 10 years ago. It was pretty soon thereafter probably nine and a half years ago. Do you keep all of your real estate or do you sell it with a lease back? We try to keep it all after that. We have not leased anything since then. So that was a great way to get the business started and to create some cash flow. But since then, we've used the cash flow from the business to continually invest back in the business. And have you sold any of your facilities? Yeah. Do you want me to walk you through some stuff related well, to that? Well, here's, here's where I'm going. If you sold the business, did you keep the real estate? Yeah. What's interesting about senior housing is oftentimes they go together. So for a long time, people were splitting it up where it's like, I'll sell the business. You pay me a lease payment and I'll hold the real estate. 
what people found is in general, that didn't work out for the operator. So you don't see as many deals. 10 years ago, you'd see a lot of those. Today, you don't really see many of them where the operator would be leasing back and you'd have a landlord situation. It's a good question. What would so when you sell stuff, we sell everything. I've spoken to a number of people in this industry and every one of them seems very passionate about what they're doing. You do as well. Do you think somebody that's wanting to transition from multifamily or retail to another asset class should get into this? Oh, it's a great question. So if you're already investing in real estate and you're doing the standard food groups, this is considered an alternative asset class in real estate. It's along the same lines as self-storage and student housing and maybe data centers, for example. And it's actually the largest portion of the alternative asset class. It will definitely feel different. We own a hundred unit apartment complex in Spokane and we hired Graystar to manage it. We don't even manage it because it's not our business. And in my opinion, that is so much easier and so different compared to this that I would say you'd want to talk to a lot of people before you just jumped in like we did. <laughs> you know, I really understand like you want to be in this space because there's a care component as well. So if they're in it for the money, don't self-manage. No, no, you won't last very long. So think about in an apartment complex, you can move right around on pricing and maybe do a, a refresh on CapEx and start being competitive and do pretty well. But imagine if you're selecting a hospital to go to, you're more interested in the reputation of the hospital, right? Even if the building might be way older, but reputation has a huge deal. So this is a blend between healthcare and real estate. And to come in and say, hey, if I just have nicer chandeliers and some better paint and carpet, I'm going to really crush it. You're not thinking about it straight. There is a huge component related to actually having a quality care that you're delivering or service where people will decide. And that's actually one of the great opportunities, though. If you are looking to come in and turn properties around, for example, unlike apartments where you might have just a few levers that you could pull that could increase the value, there are literally hundreds of items in revenue and expenses that you can work on that will change the outcome of your income, which will ultimately have a cap rate applied to it, which can increase value. So we like it for that because of the amount of opportunities and options that you have for working on a property to make it more valuable. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at passiveinvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. Passiveinvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. 
They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. What's some of the low-hanging fruit for increasing NOI in your industry? Step one is occupancy. Just like most, occupancy is a big one. Occupancy is an indicator based on your reputation. So if you come in and you start offering better care, your occupancy will start moving up. It's not as price sensitive. So if you come in and just drop rate thinking that your occupancy is going to go up, it's like buying a LASIK operations care center and just slashing prices by 50% expecting people to start showing up. Half price Mondays. Half price for your LASIK surgery. It's not going to go well. So that's one. The second thing that you can do, for example, food is a huge one. So if you just come in and say, I'm actually willing to spend more on food so that people have better food options, that goes a long way into attracting more people into your space. So the other biggest expense is just labor. Being able to come in and tightly manage labor and properly get people in the places where they need to be, but not overspend is a real trick. And and that's where you can add a lot of value. So occupancy, food, labor. Those are big ones. And not much different than a cruise line. How do you evaluate what cruise to go on? It's the quality (laughs) of the food. Do you raise capital for your deals? We do. We'll do it deal by deal. So like this summer, we did a deal where we purchased a property from a large private equity fund. They were coming into the end of a seven plus year hold for this asset. We assumed a Freddie Mac loan, and then we raised about $7 million in friends and family money just directly syndicated. We put in some of our own funds, we signed on the debt, and then we took that over. So that's one way we do it. Sometimes we partner with larger private equity funds to purchase assets. Sometimes we do it on our own balance sheet. But yeah, we'll do all of those. Adam, when you raise funds from private individuals, what's the typical rate of return? And how is that set up? Is it your typical, you get a PREF, and then upon sale, you get additional funds? Yeah, that's exactly how we did it. So I'll I'll walk through the exact example. On this particular one, it was a light turnaround. So it's sitting at 80, 85% occupancy. There wasn't a ton of meat on the bone in terms of additional value appreciation, but the risk was pretty low. So we targeted a 16% IRR total return for investors. And that's split probably 60, 40, 40% coming from just payments along the way and coupons. And then you have price appreciation at the end. So a typical hold, you're trying to get for your five or six, you're going to get to that 2X return number that you're always trying to hit on your equity multiplier. And then we had an 8% PREF with a 75-25 split. So after you get 8% for return on your money, then everything splits 75 to investors, 25% to us as the GP, but that's after return of capital. It's a pretty standard deal. When you evaluate buying one of these facilities, It's obviously not by the door, right? There's a lot of factors involved. Is there some high-level metrics that you use to get a ballpark price? 
Yeah. By the door still gets thrown around a lot. I really don't like that one because to your point, there's so many things that will change the value of the property outside of the real estate itself, that it's not a great apples to apples comparison. So when we look at a property, we'll do a full pro forma analysis and back into the returns that we're looking to hit. And that's kind of our main hurdle there. So we do have some gut check numbers like replacement costs. So cost to build is a big one. If we're looking at a deal right now where it's coming out, they want 500,000 a door. We know it costs between 250 to 300,000 a door to build these. We're not going to buy that deal, right? That's something that we look at. And then the second one that we look at is just similar to apartments, but the markets are more, think about five mile radius type stuff. So just like in a market where you wouldn't have too many supermarkets in the same neighborhood, you can't have too many senior housing properties or anything that's threatening to be built. So we look heavily on just the competition occupancy rates in a general market. And you're really looking at your closest three to five competitors. Have you looked at doing this in rural areas? I know the trend's been, you want to be closer to medical services, doctors, hospitals, but I've also seen where people now are setting up in more rural locations, because if you grew up in a rural environment, you don't want to be in the city near the hospital. Is there a market there? Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think when people think senior housing, you think the best location is going to be right next to a hospital. And really think about take the entire country and just start doing five mile bubbles. And you kind of got to fill all of those. We have a few locations in more rural, less densely populated areas. We have one in Idaho Falls. We have one in Coeur d'Alene, right? So these are 60,000 plus population sizes. You do run into a few challenges. The challenge one in like a tertiary market is labor is a challenge. So if you're going to try to keep this thing completely occupied and running on a 24-hour cycle, it might be difficult for you to find enough labor to staff it properly. So that's one. And then the second problem that I think with these smaller markets is that if it turns out that you have more beds than the market can support, there's not a lot you can do. Whereas if you're in like the middle of Phoenix, there's a lot you can do to grab and compete on market share. So when we look at senior housing, we actually have five criteria that we look for. We like them to be larger than 100 units. We like them to be in population sizes larger than 100,000 people. We predominantly want private pace. We try to actually avoid government payment types. And then we want to be independent assisted living and memory care. And then the last thing for us, which is specific, is we want to be able to have a direct flight from Salt Lake City multiple times a day. So we want to be able to fly in and out in the same day in case of emergency. So those are our five litmus tests. But the two that are relevant to everybody is you want to come up with maybe a size that you'd want to operate at and then a population. There are plenty of operators that have created a great bread and butter business operating like what you said in those tertiary markets. But it's been more of a challenge than what we've seen. Adam, on the private pay side, for apartment operators, very easy to evict somebody. Not a lot of emotion put into it. Often they've overstayed their welcome. How do you evict somebody in senior living? Oh, okay. I'll tell you two stories on that. So for one, senior living, this will come as a surprise, but it's actually a month-to-month lease. We don't have anything longer than a month. And 
that actually protects us, but it also protects the resident. Oftentimes, our average length of stay is two or two and a half years. So to consider signing even a year lease just seems really daunting for a lot of our residents. So month to month, please. The second is often there's a licensure on top of what we're doing. Now, if you imagine people are aging in place, and at a certain point, they're going to be beyond the level of care that we can provide. So there is a safety component here. So part of the lease is it's month to month. So every month is, hey, we're not going to renew this. And then the second issue is that if we can't safely take care of somebody, then we have the ability to move them to a higher level of care. So the eviction process is actually pretty well determined. There are some state laws around that. Now, we had a property in Seattle where we had a resident that turned 104, then ran out of funds. And that's a different scenario. They're healthy, they're doing fine, but they just can't pay. But no one wants to evict somebody who's 104. She was a fantastic lady. So we actually went out, signed up for a Medicaid license just to then continue to have her live there and then charge Medicaid for the services. So that was the solution that we came up with. Medicaid comes with some additional hooks and requirements, and then it doesn't pay as much, but it is a safety net for elderly when they run out of funds. So those are the two examples that I give. Higher level of care is the most common reason why people move out or need to be evicted. Rarely do we get to the point that we're evicting somebody Oftentimes at that point, we're probably dealing with the kids, like the family members, and they just want the best place for their loved one. And the last thing they want to do is keep them in a place that can't take care of them anymore. I love that story. And what a great solution you put in place. My buddies and I often joke that if we were in a nursing home, one, we'd go together and we'd probably get kicked out. Do you have any unruly guests that you have to discipline? Yeah, I think everyone knows there's a lot of stories within senior housing. So a few things, it's about 75% women, 25% men. So you and me, Ash, we're not going to make it, right? Statistically, we're not going to live as long. And about 85% of our residents are single. So they're a widower or they're not married. So you put that together and they're still pretty active. You end up with almost like a college scene vibe that people love. So can you imagine there's all sorts of stories that go along with that? related to just having a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah good. So it's encouraged versus disciplinary yeah. approach. Like, yeah, uh, yeah. As no, much we, as like, we, yeah. They, they come here to live, not to die. That's a, that's that's awesome. a real key portion of it. I love that. You know, I want to ask you, when you raise capital, what's the education component to your investors? Because it's easy to say, okay, multifamily, here's our plan on renovations or entry cap rate, rents are increased by this. You've got to do a tremendous amount of education to your investors, right? Yeah. What we found is that when somebody's investing in senior housing, they've probably already done a handful of deals in just different types of real estate, and they want to have some exposure to a different asset class within real estate. And so I think when you actually look at like an income statement, it looks very similar, your revenue and expenses and income. And then we just have to educate a little bit more on the types of strategies that we'll be implementing to turn a property around or increase profitability. It's not as difficult as, as you would think, but it definitely does take an extra level of explaining. But there's definitely interest as well. There are people that know, like what we had talked about earlier, that this is a great asset class to be in. It acts very differently in recessions than does other real estate asset classes. In fact, 
I think it performed the best in the last recession in 2008 and nine when it came to asset classes. And so looking at senior housing in 2008 and nine, it had a dip and that had to do with the source of payment for residents moving into a property got chopped in half like everybody else. The value of their home dropped, their pensions dropped, their savings. And so they can still rely on social security, but everything else was down. If you look at this time around, right after the pandemic, housing prices are up, stock market is up. And so when people are looking to move into senior housing, that is actually not a barrier right now. It's an easy decision. And you're an LP investor in a hotel. What's the play there? Yeah, you got a great thing going on and you invested as an LP. Yeah, we have a couple LP investments. Thanks for bringing that up. This came along and our main goal was we wanted to see how hotels operated. So we invested in one. And that's been a great deal. We watched what happened during the pandemic and then coming back out and it really rebounded. We wanted to see their putt and we've learned a lot about it. And so that was our reasoning for doing that. I've seen business plans where they're converting hotels into memory care facilities because there's so few entrances and exits and it's easier to control. Have you seen that? And is that a viable option? Yeah, great question. So One of the tricky things about hotels and about senior housing in general is that it's typically purpose-built for a certain concept like hospitality or taking care of seniors. And there are some scenarios in which you can change its use. And what we've seen, I've been a part of this, we've seen hotels getting converted into not just memory care, but just to senior housing. If you think about senior housing, you don't need as much square footage in the units you won't compete as well as a purpose-built senior housing these days, but you see that a lot. Early on in senior housing, we saw a lot of apartment complexes getting converted into senior housing. And we've actually done this once where we've now converted a senior housing back into an apartment complex because it wasn't working out. So you are seeing those conversions, these extended stay hotels, you're starting to see people turn into multifamily or to look at senior housing. So We've been involved in a handful of underwriting exercises related to changing the use of a hotel to something related to senior housing. And that's not uncommon at all. It's one of the next uses that people think of when they think of if a hotel's not working out. Adam, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Oh, well, I don't know if this is the best real estate investing advice, but I found that during due diligence, sometimes the smallest questions lead to the biggest issues. And we've dealt with that a handful of times. It might be an easement or that somebody has a right on your property that you're not aware of, or property taxes is going to triple when you take it over. There's no question too small to ask during due diligence, because once you own the property, you own it, right? That's your problem. So that would be my biggest advice is don't be afraid to ask a lot of questions and then read books on it. Ask other people what those questions are. And just ask, 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 and ask. And that will save you a lot of headache and lower your risk in the long run. Adam, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. Let's do it. Adam, what's the best ever book you recently read? Okay, so I read Red Notice by Bill Browder. Phenomenal. Happy to go into that, but it's basically private equity fund in Russia. It's pretty relevant today. Worth the read. And Adam, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I have a son with Down syndrome, so I love working with the Down syndrome community. I think right now, a hole to plug in that space is there's a lot of good programs for people with Down syndrome 
and other special needs up until about high school and early college. But it starts looking a little bit fuzzier after that in terms of jobs and types of opportunities. So basically giving back to that community. Adam, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Yeah, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn, Adam Benton at LinkedIn. You can find me there with Stellar Senior Living, or you can go to stellarliving.com. That's our website. There's an investor portal. Just fill in your name and a comment. and We'll set up a time to talk. Adam, I got to thank you for all of the education that you've given us today. What an amazing story from being in business school and figuring out what kind of business you want to start and now having this amazing empire where you're helping a lot of people. So thank you for sharing your story, your journey, and giving us a tremendous amount of education today. Yeah, you bet, Ash. Thanks for your time. It's our pleasure. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.